Chapter 13 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dread, Chapter 13, Tom Gordon. "'I say, Nina,' said her brother, coming in a day or two after, from a survey he had been taking round the premises. "'You want me here to manage the place? Everything's going at sixes and sevens, and that nigger of a Harry riding around with his boots shining. That fella cheats you and feathers his own nest well. I know. These white niggers are all deceitful.' "'Come, Tom, you know the estate is managed, just as father left word to have it, and Uncle John says that Harry is an excellent manager. I'm sure nobody could have been more faithful to me, and I'm very well satisfied.' "'Yes, I dare say. All left to you and the executors, as you call them, as if I were not the natural guardian of my sister. Then I come here and put up with that fellow's impudence.' "'Who's Harry's?' He is never impudent. He is always gentlemanly. Everybody remarks it. Gentlemanly. There it is, Nine. What a fool you are to encourage the use of that word in connection with any of your niggers. Gentlemen, forsooth. And while he plays gentlemen, who takes care? I tell you what, you'll find one of these days how things are going on. But that's just the way. You never would listen to me or pay the least attention to my advice. Oh, Tom, don't talk about that. Don't. I never interfere about your affairs. Please leave me the right to manage mine in my own way. And who is this Clayton that's hanging about here? Are you going to have him, or he you, hey? I don't know. Because I, for one, don't like him, and I shan't give my consent to let him have you. That other one is worth twice as much. He has one of the largest properties in New York. Joe Snyder has told me about him. You shall have him. I shall not have him. Say what you please. And I shall have Mr. Clayton if I choose, said Nina with a heightened color. You have no right to dictate to me of my own affairs, and I shan't submit to it, I tell you frankly. Heidi, tidy, we're coming up to be sure. Moreover, I wish you would let everything on this place entirely alone, and remember that my servants are not your servants, and that you have no control over them whatever. <laughs> well, we'll see how you'll help yourself. I'm not going to go skulking about on my father's own place, as if I had no right or title there. And if your niggers don't look sharp, they'll find out whether I'm the master here or not, especially that Harry... If the dog dare so much as lift his fingers to countermand any one of my orders, I'll put a bullet through his head as soon as I would through a buck's. I give you warning. Oh, Tom, pray don't talk so, said Nina, who really began to be alarmed. What do you want to make me such trouble for? The conversation was here suspended by the entrance of Milly. If you please, Miss Nina, come and show me which of your muslins you wish to be done up, as I's starching for Miss Lou. Glad of an opportunity to turn the conversation, Nina ran up to her room, whither she was followed by Millie, who shut the door, and spoke to her in mysterious tones. Miss Nina, 
can't you make some errand to get harry off the place for two or three days while massa tom's around but what right said nina with heightened colour has he to dictate to my servants or me or to interfere with any of our arrangements here oh there's no use talking about rights honey we must all do just what we can don't make much odds whether our rights is one way or t'other you see child it's just here harry's your right hand but you see he ain't learned to bend for the wind like the rest of us he is spirity he is just as full now as a powder box and massa time is bent on aggravating him and laws child there may be bloody work there may so why do you think he'd dare child don't talk to me dare yes sure enough he will dare Besides, there's fifty ways young gentlemen may take to aggravate and provoke. And when flesh and blood can't bear it no longer, if Harry raises his hand, why, then shoot him down. Nothing said, nothing done. You can't help yourself. You won't want to have a lawsuit with your own brother, and if you did, twouldn't bring Harry to life. Laws, child, if I could tell you what I've seen, you don't know nothing about it. Now, I tell you, get up some message to your uncle's plantation. Send him off for anything or nothing. Only have him gone. And then speak your brother fair. Then maybe he will go off. But don't you quarrel. Don't you cross him, come what may. There ain't a soul on the place that can bear the sight on him. But then, you see, the rest, they all bends. But, child, you must be quick about it. Let me go right off and find him. Just you come in the little back room, and I'll call him in. Pale and trembling, Nina descended into the room, and in a few moments after, Millie appeared, followed by Harry. "'Harry,' said Nina, in a trembling voice, "'I want you to take your horse and go over to Uncle John's plantation and carry a note for me.' Harry stood with his arms folded and his eyes fixed upon the ground, and Nina continued. "'And Harry,' I think you had better make some business or errand to keep you away two or three days or a week. Miss Nina, said Harry, the affairs of this place are very pressing now and need overlooking. A few days' neglect now may produce a great loss, and then it will be said that I neglected my business to idle and ride round the country. Well, but if I send you, I take the responsibility and I'll bear the loss. The fact is, Harry, I'm afraid that you won't have patience to be here now, now Tom is at home. In fact, Harry, I'm afraid for your life. And now, if you have any regard for me, make the best arrangement with the work you can and be off. I'll tell him that I sent you on business of my own, and I'm going to write a letter for you to carry. It's the only safe way. He has so many ways in which he can provoke and insult you that at last you may say or do something that will give him occasion against you, and I think he is determined to drive you to this. Isn't this provoking now? Isn't this outrageous? said Harry between his teeth, looking down. That everything must be left, and all because I haven't the right to stand up like a man and protect you and others. It is a pity. It is a shame, said Nina. But, Harry, don't stop to think upon it. Do go, she laid her hand softly on his. For my sake, now, be good. Be good. The room where they were standing had long windows, which opened like those of the parlor on the veranda, and commanded a view of the gravel walk bordered with shrubbery. 
as harry stood hesitating he started at seeing lisette come tripping up the walk balancing on her head a basket of newly ironed muslins and linens her trim little figure was displayed in a close-fitting gown of blue a snowy handkerchief crossed upon her bust and one rounded arm raised to steady the basket upon her head she came tripping forward with her usual airy motion humming a portion of a song and attracted at the same moment the attention of tom gordon and of her husband pon my word if that isn't the prettiest concern said tom as he started up and ran down the walk to meet her good morning my pretty girl he said good morning sir returned lizette in her usual tone of gay cheerfulness pray who do you belong to my pretty little puss i think i've never seen you on this place please sir i'm harry's wife indeed you are hey devilish good taste he has he said laying his hand familiarly on her shoulder the shoulder was pulled away and lisette moved rapidly on to the other side of the path with an air of vexation which made her look rather prettier what my dear don't you know that i'm your husband's young master come come he said following her and endeavouring to take hold of her arm please let me alone said lisette colouring and in a petty vexed tone let you alone no that i shan't not while you ask it in such a pretty way as that and again the hand was laid upon her shoulder it must be understood that harry had witnessed so far in pantomime this scene he had stood with compressed lips and eyes slowly dilating looking at it nina who was standing with her back to the window wondered at the expression of his countenance look there miss nina do you see my wife and your brother nina turned and in an instant the color mounted to her cheeks her little form seemed to dilate and her eyes flashed fire and before harry could see what she was doing she was down in the gravel walk and had taken lisette's hand tom gordon she said i'm ashamed of you hush hush she continued fixing her eyes upon him and stamping her foot dare you come to my place and take such liberties here you shall not be allowed to while i am mistress and i am mistress dare to lay a finger on this girl while she is here under my protection come lisette and she seized the trembling girl by the hand and drew her along towards the house tom gordon was so utterly confused at this sudden burst of passion in his sister that he let them go off without opposition in a few moments he looked after her and gave a long low whistle ah pretty well up for her but she'll find it easier said than done i fancy and he sauntered up to the veranda where harry stood with his arms folded and the veins in his forehead swelling with repressed emotion go in lisette said nana take these things into my room and i'll come to you Pon my word harry said tom coming up and addressing harry in the most insulting tone we are all under the greatest obligations to you for bringing such a pretty little fancy article here my wife does not belong to this place said harry forcing himself to speak calmly she belongs to mrs leclerc who has come into belleville plantation ah thank you for that information i may take a fancy to buy her and i'd like to know who she belongs to i've been wanting a pretty little concern of that sort she's a good housekeeper isn't she harry does up shirts well what do you suppose she could be got for 
I must go and see her mistress. During this cruel harangue, Harry's hands twitched and quivered, and he started every now and then, looking first at Nina and then at his tormentor. He turned deadly pale. Even his lips were of ashy whiteness, and with his arms still folded and making no reply, he fixed his large blue eyes upon Tom, and as it sometimes happened in moments of excitement and elevation, there appeared on the rigid lines of his face at that moment so strong a resemblance to Colonel Gordon that Nina noticed and was startled by it. Tom Gordon noticed it also. It added fuel to the bitterness of his wrath, and there glared from his eyes a malignancy of hatred that was perfectly appalling. The two brothers seemed like thunderclouds opposing each other and ready to dart lightning. Nina hastened to interfere. Hurry, hurry, Harry. I want that message carried. Do pray go directly. Let me see, said Tom. I must call Jim and have my horse. "'Which is the way to that Belleville plantation? "'I think I'll ride over.' "'And he turned and walked indolently down the steps. "'For shame, Tom. You won't. You can't. "'How can you want to trouble me so?' said Nina. "'He turned and looked upon her with an evil smile, "'turned again, and was gone. "'Harry, Harry, go quick. Don't you worry. There's no danger. "'Madame Leclerc never would consent.' "'There's no knowing,' said Harry. "'Never any knowing. "'People act about money as they do about nothing else. "'Then then I'll send and buy her myself. <laughs> "'You don't know how our affairs stand, Miss Nina,' said Harry hurriedly. "'The money couldn't be raised now for it, "'especially if I have to go off this week. "'It will make a great difference me being here or not being here, "'and very likely Master Tom may have a thousand dollars "'to pay down on the spot.' I never knew him to want money when his will was up. Great God, haven't I borne this yoke long enough? Well, Harry, I'll sell everything I've got. My jewels, everything. I'll mortgage the plantation before Tom Gordon shall do this thing. I'm not quite so selfish as I've always seemed to be. I know you've made the sacrifice of body and soul to my interest, and I've always taken it because I loved my ease and was a spoiled child. But... After all, I know I've as much energy as Tom has when I am roused, and I'll go over this very morning and make an offer for her. Only you be off. You can't stand such provocation as you get here. And if you yield, as any man will do at last, then everything and everybody will go against you, and I can't protect you. Trust to me. I'm not so much of a child as I have seemed to be. You'll find I can act for myself, and you too. There comes Mr. Clayton through the shrubbery. That's right. Order two horses round to the door immediately, and we'll go over there this morning. Nina gave her orders with a dignity as if she had been a princess, and in all his agitation, Harry could not help marveling at the sudden air of womanliness which had come over her. I could serve you, he said in a low voice, to the last drop of my blood. But, he added in a tone which made Nina tremble, I hate everybody else. I hate your country. I hate your laws. Harry, you do wrong. You forget yourself. Oh, I do wrong, do I? 
We are the people that are never to do wrong. People may stick pins in us and stick knives in us and wipe their shoes on us and spit in our face. We must be amiable. We must be the models of Christian patience. I tell you, your father should rather have put me into quarters and made me work like a field negro than to have given me the education he did and leave me under the foot of every white man that dares tread on me. Nina remembered to have seen her father in transports of passion and was again shocked and startled to see the resemblance between his face and the convulsed face before her. Harry, she said in a pitying, half-admonitory tone, do think what you are saying. If you love me, be quiet. Love you? You have always held my heart in your hand. That has been the clasp upon my chain. If it hadn't been for you, I should have fought my way to the north before now, or I would have found a grave on the road. Well, Harry, said Nina, after a moment's thought, my love shall not be a clasp upon any chain, for as there is a God in heaven, I will set you free. I'll have a bill introduced at the very next legislature, and I know what friend will see to it. So go now, Harry, go. Harry stood a moment, then suddenly raised the hand of his little mistress to his lips, turned, and was gone. Clayton, who had been passing through the shrubbery, and who had remarked that Nina was engaged in a very exciting conversation, had drawn off and stood waiting for her at the foot of the veranda steps. As soon as Nina saw him, she reached out her hand frankly, saying, "'Oh, there, Mr. Clayton, you are just the person. Wouldn't you like to take a ride with me?' "'Of course I should,' said he. "'Wait here a moment till I get ready. "'The horses will be here immediately.' "'And running up the steps, she passed quickly by him "'and went into the house. "'Clayton had felt himself in circumstances "'of considerable embarrassment "'ever since the arrival of Tom Gordon the evening before. "'He had perceived that the young man "'had conceived an instinctive dislike of himself, "'which he was at no particular pains to conceal, "'and he found it difficult to preserve the appearance "'of one who does not notice. "'He did not wish to intrude upon Nina "'any embarrassing recognition of her situation, "'even under the guise of sympathy and assistance.' and waited, therefore, till some word from her should authorize him to speak. He held himself, therefore, ready to meet any confidence which she might feel disposed to place in him, not doubting from the frankness of her nature that she would soon find it impossible not to speak of what was so deeply interesting to her. Nina soon reappeared, and, mounting their horses, they found themselves riding through the same forest road that led to the cottage of Tiff, from which a divergent path went to Belleville Plantation. "'I'm glad to see you alone this morning, for many reasons,' said Nina, "'for I think I never needed a friend's help more. "'I am mortified that you should have seen what you did last night, "'but since you have, I may as well speak of it. "'The fact is that my brother, though he is the only one I have, "'never did treat me as if he loved me. "'I can't tell what the reason is.' whether he was jealous of my poor father's love for me, or whether it was just because I was a willful, spoiled girl, and so gave him reason to be set against me, or whatever the reason might be, he never has been kind to me long at a time. Perhaps he would be if I would always do exactly as he says, 
but I am made as positive and willful as he is. I never have been controlled, and I can't recognize the right which he seems to assume to control me, and to dictate as to my own private affairs. He was not left my guardian, and though I do love him, I shan't certainly take him as one. Now, you see, he has a bitter hatred, and a most unreasonable one, towards my Harry, and I had no idea when I came home in how many ways he had the power to annoy me. It does seem as if an evil spirit possessed them both when they get together. They seem as full of electricity as they can be, and I am every instant afraid of an explosion. Unfortunately for Harry, he has had a much superior education to the generality of his class and station, and the situation of trust in which he has been placed has given him more the feelings of a free man and a gentleman than is usual. For, except Tom, there isn't one of our family circle that hasn't always treated him with kindness and even with deference, and I think this very thing angers Tom the more and makes him take every possible occasion of provoking and vexing. I believe it is his intention to push Harry up to some desperate action, and when I see how frightfully they look at each other, I tremble for the consequences. Harry has lately married a very pretty wife, with whom he lives in a little cottage on the extremity of the Belleville estate, and this morning Tom happened to spy her, and it seemed to inspire him with the most ingenious plan to trouble Harry. He threatened to come over and buy her of Madame Leclerc, and so to quiet Harry, I promised to come over here before him and make an offer for her. Why, said Clayton, do you think her mistress would sell her? I can't say. She is a person I am acquainted with only by report. She is a New Orleans Creole who has lately bought the place. Lisette, I believe, hired her time of her. Lisette is an ingenious, active creature, and contrives by many little arts and accomplishments to pay a handsome sum monthly to her mistress. Whether the offer of a large sum at once would tempt her to sell her is more than I know until it's tried. I should like to have Lisette for Harry's sake. And do you suppose your brother was really serious? I shouldn't be at all surprised if he were. But serious or not serious, I intend to make the matter sure. If it be necessary to make an immediate payment, said Clayton, I have a sum of money which is lying idle in the bank, and it's but drawing a check which will be honored at sight. I mention this because the ability to make an immediate payment may make the negotiation easier. You ought to allow me the pleasure of joining you in a good work. Oh, thank you, said Nana, frankly. It may not be necessary, but if it should be, I will take it in the same spirit in which it is offered. After a ride of about an hour, they arrived in the boundaries of Belleville Plantation. In former days, Nina had known this as the residence of an ancient rich family with whom her father was on visiting terms. She was therefore uncomfortably struck with the air of poverty, waste, and decay everywhere conspicuous through the grounds. 
nothing is more depressing and disheartening than the sight of a gradual decay of what has been arranged and constructed with great care and when nina saw the dilapidated gateway the crushed and broken shrubbery the gaps in the fine avenue where the trees had been improvidently cut down for firewood she could not help a feeling of depression how different this place used to be when i came here as a child this madam whatever her name is can't be much of a manager as she said this their horses came up the front of the house in which the same marks of slovenly neglect were apparent blinds were hanging by one hinge the door had sunk down into the rotten sill the wooden pillars that supported it were decayed at the bottom and the twining roses which once climbed upon them laid trailing dishonored upon the ground the veranda was littered with all kinds of rubbish rough boxes saddles bridles overcoats and various nondescript articles formed convenient hiding-places and retreats in which a troop of negro children and three or four dogs were playing at hide-and-go-seek with great relish and noise on the alighting of nina and clayton at the door they all left their sports and arranged themselves in a grinning row to see the newcomers descend nothing seemed to be further from the minds of the little troop than affording the slightest assistance in the way of holding horses or answering questions all they did was alternately to look at each other and the travellers and grin a tattered servant man with half a straw hat on his head was at length raised by a call of clayton who took their horses having first distributed a salutation of kicks and cuffs among the children asking where their manners were and why they didn't show the gentleman and lady in and nina and clayton were now marshalled by the whole seven of them into an apartment on the right of the great hall everything in the room appeared in an unfinished state the curtains were half put up at the windows and part lying in a confused heap on the chairs the damp mouldy paper which hung loosely from the walls had been torn away in some places as if to prepare for repapering and certain half-opened rolls of costly wallpaper lay on the table on which appeared the fragment of some ancient luncheon to wit plates and pieces of bread and cheese dirty tumblers and an empty bottle it was difficult to find a chair sufficiently free from dust to sit down on nina sent up her card by one of the small fry who having got halfway up the staircase was suddenly taken with the desire to slide down the banisters with it in his hand of course he dropped the card in the operation and the whole group precipitated themselves briskly on to it all in a heap and fought tooth and nail for the honour of carrying it upstairs they were aroused however by the entrance of the man with half a hat who on nina's earnest suggestion plunged into the troop which ran chattering and screaming like so many crows to different parts of the hall while he picked up the card and with infinite good will beaming on his shining black face went up with it leaving nina and clayton waiting below in a few moments he returned missus will see the young lady upstairs nina tripped promptly after him and left clayton the sole tenant of the parlor for an hour at length she returned skipping down the stairs and opening the door with great animation the thing is done she said the bill of sale will be signed as soon as we can send it over 
I had better bring it over myself, said Clayton, and make the arrangement. So be it, said Nina, but pray let us be delivered from this place. Did you ever see such a desolate-looking house? I remember when I've seen it a perfect paradise, full of the most agreeable people. And pray what sort of a person did you find? said Clayton as they were riding homeward. Well, she's one of the toe-string order of women. Very slack-twisted, too, I fancy. Tall, snuffy, and sallow. Clothes look rough, dry, as if they had been pulled out of a bag. She had a bright-colored madras handkerchief tied round her head, and spoke French a little more through her nose than French people usually do. Flourished a yellow silk pocket-handkerchief, poor soul. She said she had been sick for a week with a toothache, and kept awake all night. So one mustn't be critical. One comfort about these French people is that they're always ravis de vouvoir. Let what will turn up. The good soul was really polite, and insisted on clearing all the things off from a dusty old chair for me to sit down in. The room was as much at sixes and sevens as the rest of the house. She apologized for the whole state of things by saying that they could not get workmen out there to do anything for her. And so everything is left in the second future tense. And the darkies, I imagine, have a general glorification in the chaos. She is one of the indulgent sort, and I suspect she'll be eaten up by them like the locusts. Poor thing, she is shockingly homesick and longing for Louisiana again. For notwithstanding her snuffy appearance and yellow pocket handkerchief, she really has a genuine taste for beauty, and spoke most feelingly of the oleanders, crepe myrtles, and cape jessamines of her native state. Well, how did you introduce your business? said Clayton, laughing at this description. Me? Why, I flourished out a little French I have at command, and she flourished her little English, and I think I rather prepossessed the good soul to begin with. Then I made a sentimental story about Lisette and Harry's amours, because I know French people always have a taste for the sentimental. The old thing was really quite affected, wiped her little black eyes, pulled her hooked nose as a tribute to my eloquence, called Lisette her enfant mignon, and gave me a little lecture on the tender passion, which I am going to lay up for future use. Indeed, said Clayton, I should be charmed to have you repeat it. Can't you give us a synopsis? I don't know what synopsis means, but if you want me to tell you what she said, I shan't do it. Well, now, do you know I am in the best spirits in the world now that I've got this thing off my mind and out of that desolate house? Did you ever see such a direful place? What is the reason when we get down south here? Everything seems to be going to destruction, so. I noticed it all the way down through Virginia. It seems as if everything had stopped growing and was going backwards. Well, now, it's so different at the north. I went up one vacation into New Hampshire. It was dreadfully poor, barren country, nothing but stony hills and poor soil, and yet the people there seemed to be so well off. They live in such nice, tight, clean-looking white houses. Everything around them looks so careful and comfortable, and yet their land isn't half so good as ours down here. Why, actually, some of those places seem as if there were nothing but rock. And then they have winter about nine months in the year, I do believe. But these Yankees turn everything to account. If a man's field is covered with rock, he'll find some way to sell it, 
and make money out of it. And if they freeze up all winter, they sell the ice and make money out of that. They just live by selling their disadvantages. And we grow poor by wasting our advantages, said Clayton. Do you know, people think it's a dreadful thing to be an abolitionist. But for my part, I've a great inclination to be one. Perhaps because I have a contrary turn and always have a little spite against what everybody else believes. But if you won't tell anybody, I'll tell you. I don't believe in slavery. Neither do I, said Clayton. You don't? Well, really, I thought I was saying something original. Now, the other day, Aunt Nesbitt's minister was at our house, and they sat crooning together, as they always do. And among other things, they said, What a blessed institution it was to bring these poor Africans over here to get them Christianized. So, by way of saying something to give them a start, I told them I thought they came nearer to making heathen of us than we to making Christians of them. That's very true, said Clayton. There's no doubt that the kind of society which is built up in this way constantly tends to run back towards barbarism. It prevents general education of the whites and keeps the poorer classes down to the lowest point while it enriches a few. Well, what do we have to do it for? Why don't we blow it up right off? That's a question easier asked than answered. The laws against emancipation are very stringent. But I think it is every owner's business to contemplate this as a future resort and to educate his servants in reference to it. That is what I'm trying to do on my plantation. Indeed, said Nina, looking at him with a good deal of interest. Well, now, that reminds me of what I was going to say to you. Generally speaking, my conscience don't trouble me much about my servants, because I think they are doing about as well with me as they would be likely to do anywhere else. But now there is Harry. He is well educated, and I know that he could do for himself anywhere better than he does here. I have always had a kind of sense of this, but I've thought of it more lately, and I'm going to try to have him set free at the next legislature. And I shall want you to help me about all the what-do-you-call-ems. Of course, I shall be quite at your service, said Clayton. There used to be some people when I was up at the north who talked as if all of us were no better than a pack of robbers and thieves. And, of course, when I was there, I was strong for our institutions and would not give them an inch of ground. It set me to thinking, though, and the result of my thinking is that we have no right to hold those to work for us who clearly can do better. Now there's Aunt Nesbitt's Millie, there's Harry and Lizette. Why, it's clear enough. If they can support themselves and us, too, they certainly can support themselves alone. Lizette has paid eight dollars a month to her mistress and supported herself besides. I'm sure it's we that are the helpless ones. Well, do you think Aunt Nesbitt is going to follow your example? No, catch her at it. Aunt Nesbitt is doubly fortified in her religion. She is so satisfied with something or other about cursed be Canaan, she'd let Millie earn ten dollars a month for her all year round and never trouble her head about taking every bit of it. Some folks, you know, have a way of calling everything they want to do a dispensation of providence. Now, Aunt Nesbitt is one of them. She always calls it a dispensation that the Negroes were brought over here and a dispensation that we are the mistresses. 
Ah, Milly will not get set free while Aunt Nesbitt is alive. And do you know, though it does not seem very generous in me, yet I'm resigned to it, because Milly is such a good soul and such a comfort to me. Do you know she seems a great deal more like a mother to me than Aunt Nesbitt? Why, I really think, if Milly had been educated as we are, she would have made a most splendid woman, been a perfect Candace, Queen of Ethiopia. There's a vast deal that is curious and interesting in some of these old Africans. I always did love to be with them. Some of them are so shrewd and original. But I wonder now what Tom will think of my cutting him out so neatly. "'Twill make him angry, I suppose.' "'Oh, perhaps after all he had no real intention of doing anything of the kind. "'He may have said it merely for bravado.' "'I should have thought so, if I hadn't known that he always had a grudge against Harry.' "'At this moment the galloping of a horse was heard in the woodland path before them, "'and very soon Tom Gordon appeared in sight, accompanied by another man on horseback, "'with whom he was in earnest conversation.' There was something about the face of this man which, at the first glance, Nina felt to be very repulsive. He was low, thick-set, and yet lean. His features were thin and sharp, his hair and eyebrows bushy and black, and a pair of glassy pale blue eyes formed a peculiar contrast to their darkness. There was something in the expression of the eye which struck Nina as hard and cold. Though the man was habited externally as a gentleman, there was still about him an underbred appearance which could be detected at the first glance as the coarseness of some woods reveal themselves through every varnish. "'Good morrow, Nina,' said her brother, drawing his horse up to meet hers and signing to his companion to arrest his also. "'Allow me to present to you my friend, Mr. Jekyll. We are going out to visit the Belleville Plantation.' "'I wish you a pleasant ride,' said Nana, and touching her horse, she passed them in a moment. Looking back almost fiercely a moment, she turned and said to Clayton, "'I hate that man.' "'Who is it?' said Clayton. "'I don't know,' said Nana. "'I never saw him before, but I hate him. He is a bad man. I'd as soon have a serpent come near me as that man.' "'Well, the poor fellow's face isn't prepossessing.' "'but I should not be prepared for such an anathema.' "'Tom's badness,' continued Nina, "'speaking as if she were following out a train of thought "'without regard for her companion's remark, "'is good turned to bad. "'It's wine turned to vinegar. "'But this man don't even know what good is.' "'How can you be so positive about a person "'you've only seen once?' Oh, said Nina, resuming her usual gay tones, don't you know that girls and dogs and other inferior creatures have a gift of seeing what's in people? It doesn't belong to high cultivated folks like you, but to us poorer creatures who have to trust to our instincts. So beware. And as she spoke, she turned to him with a fascinating air of half saucy defiance. Well, said Clayton, have you seen then what is in me? "'Yes, to be sure,' said Nina with energy. "'I knew what you were from the very first time I saw you, "'and that's the reason why.' Clayton made an eager gesture, "'and his eyes met hers with a sudden flash of earnestness. "'She stopped and blushed and then laughed. "'What, Nina?' 
Oh, well, I always thought you were a grandfatherly body, and that you wouldn't take advantage of us girls, as some of the men do. And so I've treated you with confidence. As you know, I had just the same feeling that you could be trusted as I have that that other fellow cannot. Well, said Clayton, that deduction suits me so well that I should be sorry to undermine your faith. Nevertheless, I must say such a way of judging isn't always safe. Instinct may be a greater matter than we think, yet it isn't infallible any more than our senses. We try the testimony even of our eyesight by reason. It will deceive us if we don't. Much more we ought to try this more subtle kind of sight. Maybe so, said Dinah, yet I don't think I shall like that man after all. But I'll give him a chance to alter my feeling by treating him civilly if Tom brings him back to dinner. That's the best I can do. End of chapter 13 Tom Gordon